0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel, and I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. you know, Tyler, there's a lot of interesting things on the American shoreline that we try to bring to our listeners. And today is a show where I think we're going to be introducing folks all over the country to a very important part of the American shoreline, the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway. Now, before you start dialing down this volume, I'm telling you, this is a really interesting and important aspect of the American shoreline and we have with us today brad pickle the executive director of the atlantic intercoastal waterway association i'm really looking forward to talking to brad
1: yeah brad welcome to the american shoreline podcast
2: thank you guys for having me
1: you know peter uh you couldn't have said it better and and i think that you know we were as we were preparing for the show i was saying boy you go back to your high school history class you don't realize that a lot of those early american treaties Uh, and and actual states working with each other. This goes back to the 1700s, was about uh, transporting stuff along the Atlantic coast within these barrier islands. Now this would ultimately become this really critical piece of national infrastructure that we don't, most of us don't think about every day, but Brad certainly does. So we're really looking forward to getting into this conversation. But before we do, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. We want to thank uh, the American Shore and Beach
0: Preservation Association, a longtime sponsor of Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We'll be broadcasting from the ASBPA conference coming up October 22nd to 25th in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We hope to see you there, and you can get registered for that conference and get over to Myrtle Beach at ASBPA.org.
1: And we are welcoming today, the very purpose of this show, we are welcoming aboard the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association. This is Brad's organization. Uh, we are thrilled to have partnered with them to bring you coverage of their 20-year annual meeting. This is their 20th year uh, in 2019, Peter, we are really looking forward to being there.
0: Yeah. uh, Brad, thank you so much for being a sponsor on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today. And we are absolutely looking forward to coming to the AIWA conference in Savannah, Georgia, November 21st and 22nd. So Brad, welcome to ASP. And, uh, Tell us a little bit about what you do and what the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association is all about.
2: Sure. Well, first off, thank you, guys. I really am glad to be partnering with you Uh, when you all reached out. It was an easy decision for us to make. We have a long time history uh, with some of the partners you've already mentioned there at ASBPA and other groups that I know that you all work with. and, And we're happy to be part of the team and getting the message across because... As you mentioned, uh, we do represent uh, the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway itself, but there's a lot of back bay shorelines that fall along that intercoastal waterway that that we have some unique opportunities to uh, have dual usage of the dredge material that comes out of our channel. And that's really our focus. Since 1999, the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway has been focused on the removal of dredge material. Uh, We will not call it spoil because we know it's a resource. But the removal of that dredge material from the channel and finding upland uses, uh, beneficial uses to increase coastal resiliency, while at the same time maintaining navigation, and and specifically for us, we have historically focused on the 1,100 miles from Norfolk, Virginia, down into South Florida. Uh, But most recently, we've started to partner with organizations going all the way up into the Northeast, So we're focusing on trying to be the voice of the waterway, the unified voice of the waterway, all along the eastern seaboard, uh, what we also refer to as Marine Highway 95. Uh, And so our efforts run the gamut.
1: You know, Brad, I I just have to, for for the benefit of our listeners, I mean, let's talk about some of the uh, physical qualities of this waterway. How many miles does it, where does it start, where does it end? Uh, What are maybe some of the key features in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure along the way uh, that make this uh, such a critical piece of infrastructure on the eastern seaboard?
2: Well, yeah, I I agree. That is a great place to jump off. And it's not just us that think it's a great waterway. Uh, As I mentioned, Marine Highway 95 is a designation that was given to the AIWW by the Maritime Administration of U.S. Department of Transportation. So they see the value of this as an interconnected system that allows us to move uh, products and people up and down our eastern seaboard. Uh, Some of the highlights just that that jumped to mind for me is uh, all the beautiful natural areas that people may or may not ever be able to visit. I think of the the wetland system in southern Georgia. That's one of the most expansive outside of the Everglades in the entire United States. Uh, I think of some of the beautiful channels that were dug to connect bays, uh, Chesapeake, Uh, Albemarle and Chesapeake Canal and the Dismal Swamp Canal connecting Norfolk, Virginia, down into North Carolina, uh, that really shows people the value of the waterway to local communities. There's a number of small local fishing villages all up and down the waterway that rely on this access to get out both to the open ocean and also to distribute their cargo up and down the waterway. Uh, A lot of people don't realize it, but when they see trucks on the road, Those containers that sit on trucks, we're also starting to see containers moved on barges. It's uh, been done successfully now in the Virginia area, and they just set up another or are working on setting up another container on barge service in South Carolina and in Georgia. So there's a lot of really good opportunities to increase the viability of the entire nation's transportation system by focusing a little bit more heavily on the marine aspect. Uh, We think of our ports – Uh, very clearly, as they are the exit ramps to the world. But the AIWA supports the marine highways that connect those exit ramps to the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's incredible, Brad, because you mentioned 1999, uh, 20 years ago, the organization began. But actually, uh, when you look at the overall history of the waterway, that's that's kind of recent history. Why don't you take us through uh, kind of the origins of the waterway and, and walk us through the years to the to the organization's founding in 1999 and then what you guys have been working on since?
2: Sure. Yeah. The, uh, the easiest place to start is looking at the late 1700s. Um, as I mentioned briefly a second ago, we have a lot of canals that had to be dug to connect existing water bodies. And the first one that was, that was initiated was the Dismal Swamp Canal. And that was in 1793. So we, we actually look back when we're talking about the AIWW, the, the section focused on from Norfolk down to Florida, really starting, you know, well over 200 years ago, which is pretty amazing for our country. Wow. Um, uh, moving forward from there, and not to give you the, the step-by-step, is each state had these same issues where they had these beautiful long water bodies that needed these channels to be drugged, to be uh, interconnected. So in a lot of places, what we saw was that uh, the initial work was within each state. There wasn't yet the interconnectivity that we rely upon today. Uh, so the, the first little piece was just to connect Virginia into North Carolina uh, then you you started looking at some of the sections in North Carolina starting to get interconnected, moving on down into South Carolina and Georgia. And then over time, they would connect those larger pieces into the full system with the last piece coming on board in the early 1930s in Florida. Uh, but the reason is very specific. Uh, I mentioned the movement of cargo, but back then it was for safe an effective movement of cargo. And I use safe very importantly because the, the reason why a lot of this came to be, especially the early projects was the war of 1812 actually huh. goes back to the British blockade of the war of 1812 and the, the, The early U.S. settlers, the early U.S. citizens knew that they had to be able to get products up and down the eastern seaboard without getting uh, attacked. So it started with the British blockade, but then uh, national defense played another integral role in the early uh, 1900s with U-boats. German U-boats sitting offshore uh, were decimating a lot of sections of our, our naval shipping uh, naval and commercial shipping opportunities so the waterway was extremely valuable because it's a shallow draft waterway It's only is about 12 feet deep so u boats weren't going to be able to hide in 12 feet of water uh, but it allowed for a lot of commerce to be maintained and carried out throughout the atlantic coast so national fence is really the origin of the waterway but over time it's continued to grow into more commercial and recreational usage
0: but an, what an interesting history. Uh, the people, I, you know, have to be reminded, I think, a little bit that in the early days of the country, going back to, as you said, 1787, the beginnings of the intercoastal waterway system, uh, not quite labeled that way at that point, but this maritime commerce was so critical to the early phases of the United States. That's how people moved around. Uh, there weren't the, obviously, the land road systems that there are today. So the, I think Tyler's right. When you're, we, we all were in, in, when we were in early American history, I guess it was probably junior high when, when right? The Erie Canal always came up in the history right. book. And this system of waterborne transportation was essential to the early economy of the United States. And, and as you say, that what's obviously uh, an attribute of this waterway is its inland position. And you are able to move large amounts of cargo and material inside the land edge of the country, which is safer from storms, safer from threats, that kind of thing. And this intercoastal waterway, as you say, continues to be a critical component of the economy of the Atlantic seaboard. But we haven't said, how long is the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway uh, the entire stretch uh, from its northernmost point? Where does it begin and where does it end and how many miles?
2: Well, that's really a tricky question, and it should be much easier. The uh, official Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway uh, that is uh, maintained by the Corps of Engineers as a contiguous project um, ties in with the Intracoastal Waterway in Florida at St. John's River. Uh, so we historically have focused on, on those two projects, which is just 1,100 miles. Uh, going north of there, it, it's a little more challenging because you have discrete projects that, although they show up on a NOAA chart as the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway, it's not really. Uh, but, but I can name those off. You're going north from Norfolk, you run into you go up Chesapeake Bay and cut across the C&D Canal, uh, down through the Delaware River, and then up through the New Jersey Intercoastal Waterway along the Long Island Sound on the backside of New York up across uh, the Cape Cod Channel into Boston, Massachusetts. So, okay. The, the official length is for the AIWW is 1100, but as you can see just in that brief description, <laughs> there's hundreds of more miles that go to the northeast that are interconnected now. The the crazy history on that is the C&D Canal. Back when they were doing all this work uh, in the early 1900s, they didn't have the funding to complete the C&D Canal. And there was not a non-federal sponsor that was willing to step up and do it at that point. So that's the reason why it starts in Nor- Norfolk. Uh, huh. if, as, as a lot of people know, C&D Canal has is, is definitely been cut since then. It's in well-maintained. The last dredging project was last year by Great Lakes Dredge and Dock. Uh, so it is... Uh, dredged and maintained now and we have the full interconnectivity and we have a lot of people that use them Uh, the group that comes to mind that some may be familiar with is the great loop cruisers oh Uh, yeah yeah and we We got to talk about about these guys yeah i'll hit them real quick um they're recreational boaters that really understand and value the fact that we are we are a maritime nation at, at the right. our beginning, at our core, uh, we have these waterways that connect in. We talked about the, the section on the eastern seaboard. Uh, it also goes through the Okeechobee Canal, uh, over into the Gulf Intercoastal Waterway, and then up the Mississippi River, through the Great Lakes, uh, back through New York, and on around Connecting back to the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway, uh, that's the Great Loop. And the Great Loop Cruisers, uh, on any given day, there's, there's thousands of them that are making this trip. They don't always do it all in one piece. They often do it over multiple seasons. They've got a whole group that is really works to keep them connected called the American Great Luz- Cruisers Association. But on our stretch of the waterway, we find that about twelve to 14,000 snowbirds uh, is the last estimate twelve to fourteen thousand snowbirds make that migration from the northeast all the way down uh, to the southeast, primarily to Florida or the Bahamas, uh, but some of them stop here in South Carolina and North Carolina, and they're a huge economic asset because, on average, not every day, but on average, they spend about two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars a day wow. as they make these trips. So for that, those local communities that I mentioned, uh, on these canals and waterways that, that rely on that, the recreational user, this is real money and it supports sure. uh, a, a number of jobs.
0: Well, it's, it's, this is one of the interesting things. It's a subculture in the boating community. The, uh, the loopers as they're called, and there is an association of loopers, the great loopers association. I think it, it's called, but, uh, I was surprised to learn about this, uh, that, and, and, for the benefit of folks who, uh, like like myself, who aren't really familiar with this community, it's the opportunity to sail a recreational craft, uh, a motor yacht. I think most of the time these are motor and not sail, but either uh, you can start in Florida, sail up the intercoastal waterway, uh, whether it's the Atlantic or whatever these subparts are jurisdictionally called, all the way up to... New York, uh, Boston, you can go down the St. Lawrence River into the Great Lakes system. You can stop in Duluth, Minnesota, if you want to go that far over into the Great Lakes and then come down the Mississippi River all the way down to the Gulf Coast in New Orleans and then take the Gulf Intercoastal Waterway around to Florida and make this giant loop and circumnavigate basically from the Mississippi River to the Eastern Seaboard. It's kind of an amazing thing, and there's a whole culture, as you say, built around that. And all of that is a function of these federally maintained waterways. And uh, but Brad, I know that the that the Intercoastal Waterway system, the ICW, the entire sort of network of channels that the federal government and states maintain um, is also essential for commercial transportation. Tell us about the waterway. That your group tracks. What is the economic impact of this waterway? Tell us about tonnages and volumes and that kind of stuff.
2: Sure. Um, you know, there's it's, uh, the, the, one, of the va- one of the things I love about talking and, and educating people about my, what I like to call my waterway is, is the unique values that it brings about. Um, the, the first off, what always uh, comes to mind is the tonnage. And we definitely have areas that, uh, that we have a lot of commercial shipping going. Some of the areas that come to mind are around our major ports where we have the Charleston port deepening and the, between Brunswick and Savannah. We have a number of commercial operators that move products up and down the Eastern seaboard between North Carolina and South Carolina. We, we transport seed and feed a lot of scrap metal, but it's, it's not just the tonnage, it's also the value of the equipment because when Charleston was just getting started with the Boeing plant in Charleston, South Carolina, a lot of the fuselage was, could only come by water because it couldn't physically get there by rail or truck because there were infrastructure constraints. Uh, we see that also when they were replacing the, uh, bridge spans out in the outer banks of North Carolina, those had to come in by the waterway. Uh, One of the the things that is often forgotten, but as I mentioned earlier, is the national defense piece. All of the jet fuel that's for the F-35B experimental aircraft that the Marine Corps flies out of uh, where I live in Beaufort, South Carolina, all that jet fuel comes by the waterway. Uh, In addition to that, we have Homeland Security training down in uh, by the ATF down in Georgia. In addition to numerous military facilities that use uh, the waterway for training, whether it's Paris Island, Marine Corps Depot, which is all the trainees in the Marine Corps east of the Mississippi River here in Beaufort or Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. So the value of the waterway expands much beyond the obvious one. And I definitely don't want to leave the obvious one behind, which is recreational. But we argue that it's not just, you know, Tyler, Brad and Peter out joyriding on a Sunday – on the waterway, it's also those people that are investing heavily in buying the boats, in buying the fuel, the gas, going and shopping at the convenience stores, and all the other things that go with boating. Uh, right. it's, it's the, the
0: uh, it's the waterway version of RVing, and all of the things that goes with the RV economy uh, happens on the water as well. And it's more expensive because it's on the water. And it's more wow. fun, and it's cooler. I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would rather take. I would love to do a loop trip. Wouldn't it? What an extraordinary thing that would be to totally to 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 do. My gosh.
2: Oh man, it's it's great. I've, I I get the pleasure when these guys come down and they uh, they usually stop here in Beaufort. I'll, one or two usually check in with me. Some of the guys that I've gotten to meet over the years, and it's it's a blast to go sit on their boat and have a a docktail. They actually yeah. call them docktails. <laughs> uh, you were right when you said it's a, a totally unique culture, and and we have marinas that that cater to that. We've got a, a yeah. we're, us being a membership organization. We have a number of marinas that are these little inland marinas that love uh, having those. Uh, men and women stop in and, and stay with them a, a few days or a few weeks. You never really know how long you're going to stay at one port, it seems. And and here where we live in Beaufort, uh, we often have a little bit longer stays because most of the marinas, we've got three marinas that are right near downtown. So it's, uh, it's cool to see.
1: You know, Brad, I've got to say, I'm a bit surprised that the about what you just said about the, you know, people think of the, the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway as a recreational uh that kind of as being the obvious because um you know for me as a west coast guy born and raised there was no barrier island system It, it wasn't there wasn't this obvious recreational component on the bay side of uh you know the entire eastern seaboard it seems um and what i did know about the intracoastal waterways, like I'm sure a great number of our uh, audience that I'm sure count themselves as space nerds in addition to being coastal lovers, uh, is that the Apollo, the large uh, portions of the Apollo uh, Saturn V rocket that were manufactured, I want to say in Huntsville, kind of around the country, I believe they were kind of manufactured, but to transport them. Like you said, there were infrastructure restraints. You couldn't necessarily put these things on trucks. You can't drive them around. You can't put them on rail. So this was the, this had to be factored in by NASA when they were building facilities. And I'm sure the same, what you were talking about with the uh, military is, I'm sure the same. They're moving very large, um, you know, uncommonly shaped uh, physical things. And the waterway really excels at allowing us to move as a country, both for commercial reasons and for national defense reasons, and for scientific research reasons in the case of NASA, uh, to move these big pieces of equipment around. And uh, I I think that that's just a really important thing for our audience to remember. Um, And what you completely, I, I just completely did not understand was that what we're dealing with here. Are these old, centuries-old waterways that are beautiful on the backside of uh, the 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 coastal areas of Georgia and uh, South Carolina? Tell me, tell us more about just the physical. Like, what's it like being back there? I mean, what's the what's the is it? Does it feel commercial? Like, is the channel? you know, strictly carved, what is, is, does it feel like a natural space? I'm, I'm just curious to know after all these years, what the, what it's like.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, and it gets down to what the authorization came for the waterway. The way that they initially authorized the project for the Corps of Engineers for the maintenance dredging aspect is when they're doing these land cuts, when I'm talking about the different canals and a lot of people are familiar with Myrtle Beach, where I, uh, I, I realize you guys are going for ASBPA's conference, that's, right. that's called the ditch. And they literally, that's been authorized to be 12 feet deep by 90 feet wide. So that's supposed to be, it's minimum widths and depths. But once again, that's subject to federal appropriations. uh, (laughs) But you're looking at that. Now, when we get down to these open coast areas, as we're talking about in Georgia, they generally are authorized to be up to 150 feet wide and 12 feet deep. So in many, many areas where you don't have these channels that have been dug in, you actually have wide expanses of marsh on either side and trees. Uh, if you think of the Cumberland Island seashore, people, are, some people are familiar with Cumberland Island being a national seashore. Absolutely. But a, a lot of beautiful areas that uh, you can't see anything except for trees and, and marsh grass and uh, very active marsh systems along with the maritime forest. And then around on the other side of the island, Barrier Island, you would definitely see the beaches. Um, but no, these are very – a lot of areas are – can only be reached by the water away uh, well let's, there's there there's a lot of areas uh, i'll use one example in georgia uh, mcintosh county doesn't have one mile of rail in the entire county so when you're talking about the three major systems for transportation of products along the seaboard you would say truck rail and water well that's an example of one county that doesn't even have a mile of rail wow so so it's uh some of these areas are very pristine and, and beautiful and i'd love to take you out on the water sometime
0: Well, let's talk about your role as the executive director of the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association. Um, It is an advocacy organization, I understand, and as you said, tries to be a unified voice for the waterway. Tell us about why this organization came into being. Why is it important?
2: Yeah, it really ties back into that subject to federal appropriations comment. Um, yes, it, we do have a great and illustrious history, as we pointed out, starting in the late 1700s going to into the 1900s uh, and on into today. But as with all federally maintained projects, there are limits based on appropriations from Congress. And so our organization came about in uh, Late 90s, but was officially formed in 1999 by a group of stakeholders, both dredge companies, tugboat operators, commercial shippers, um, Boat US, Nash Marine Manufacturers Association. So a lot of both the recreational aspect in addition to the commercial uh, entities saying, hey, we've got to start coming together to be a voice to advocate for the waterway as a system. Uh, historically, if you remember back, this was the earmark days where yep. – you know, Tyler would get his million dollars, Peter would get his million dollars, and Brad would get his million dollars, but to mobilize dredge equipment took a million dollars. So nobody was really getting a lot of work done because the, the system itself was being really treated more parochially where you had to get maybe one project a year because the money was getting spread out so far and wide. Right. Well, what our organization came to do and is continued to do and is really strongly advocating now in the work plan environment is to treat it more as a system and say, OK, let's focus on specifically for us right now, the 1100 miles. Let's, and, you know, where are our biggest trouble spots in trying to support our non-federal partners in advocating for projects hmm. in their area that then allow the viability of the system to increase? That's, as,
0: uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: I'm just saying, as that as that viability of the system increases, then commercial investment increases. But it's the chicken and the egg. You know, we we're not having commercial usage up the entire waterway because we don't have maintained waterway. If we had maintained waterway, we would likely have more. And we're hearing from commercial operators that they would do more work along the waterway. Okay. Um, so, well, so, it's it's,
0: um, it's right down the middle in American advocacy in our in how our politics and political system operate, which is to form an organization that's dedicated to a particular. Uh, outcome. And in this case, it is uh, what I like about and I think what is different, actually, about the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association is the fact that you guys are looking at the system as a whole and are going to be advocating. You might be from Georgia, but you might be as an advocate and a member of AIWA working very hard to make sure that the waterway is sustained in Virginia or in North Carolina or another state. And that sort of commitment to the system i think is a little bit different than the infighting that can occur like we've got a problem down here in this part of the chesapeake bay we don't give a damn about anybody else let's just get you know let's go alone to congress you guys have tried to bring that together and advocate on a system-wide basis how did that come about because it's unusual (laughs)
2: It is, yeah. No, uh, I am. I, I know how fortunate I am. I became executive director in 2012, and and it would. How it came to be was a lot of work by a lot of smart people that were willing to uh, own the the overall need and put aside their individual desires uh, and, and and come up with one cohesive message, which is that we are better together. And it seems so simple, uh, but it's not. And, and you highlight a lot of the reasons why. It's We do have people that their offices are in Georgia, and their offices are in Florida, and they aren't necessarily doing waterway work all the way up and down, but the majority of our larger members are. And in addition to that, a lot of our local government members see the value of the transient voter. So we're able to explain that as long as you're supporting us, we're going to continue to advocate for all the worst spots. And so it might not be uh, in Peter County today or Tyler County tomorrow. It may be in Brad County, but we're going to come through and continue to advocate for the system. And over time, you actually win, because, especially if you're the smaller community, because you know that at some time your card's going to get pulled. And you're going to be invited to the dance. And so that's what we do is we just continue to cast a very wide net, everything down to a recreational boater member, all the way up to large corporations because we know that being more or unified and representing a larger tent while also being super hyper focused on a mission of just getting involved in the maintenance, dredging and maintenance and management of the waterway. It it doesn't invite in a lot of issues where some of these stakeholders may be at conflict, may be in conflict. Uh, It it allows them to say, okay, we understand that in 2012, for example, there was zero federal dollars in the president's budget. Zero dollars in the president's budget for the entire waterway. Uh, and yet now we're looking just last year, the final appropriation was 24, 23.9 million. Uh, when you're, when you're looking at over the last couple of years, we've had over $40 million, uh, 40 to $50 million over the last couple of years. And this year in 2019, we actually had waterway dredging going on in every state. So... It, it took a little bit of time to get the ball rolling. It, it takes a lot of uh, effort and involvement by our stakeholders, but but they tell the stories that it takes to change the hearts and minds, and it, it's really the individual stories is how we get our work done.
1: Well, Brad, you know, I'm going to just kind of say it again because I think it's it's worth it's worth pointing out what you're doing here. So, you know, the the waterway relies on. Uh, as you put it, federal appropriation, but that is a political process. And um, if it were not for your organization uh, serving as the, um, the platform, a unified platform of advocacy, what would happen is, and I'm sure this did happen prior to 1999, is that all of the different stakeholders would go straight to their representatives and they would all get nothing. Because they're fighting with each other, <laughs> they're they're competing over the same slice of pie, and what you're doing is you're uh, bringing them all together with their differences, uh, but you're distilling their uh, their deeper desire to have a functional, maintained waterway and provide a uh, a, a sounding a, a, a single voice, a singular bo- voice, or I guess you might say a chorus of voices, with as you put it, your your stakeholders. Who are then able to go to congress and really, you know, create some harmony and and the representatives from Georgia, the representatives from North Carolina, the representatives from Virginia, all the way up to Massachusetts. And I should point out Democrats and Republicans. If you're interested if you if you if your deal is uh, national security, you can get behind this thing and if your deal is is green infrastructure and expanding our ability to capture carbon and through marshes and things like that and actually reduce transportation carbon use, this is a good thing for you too. So I just think it's a great uh, organization. Now, But of course, what's unsaid there, Brad, and this is your job, is that you do have to deal with competing interests. And um, tell us a little bit about your strategy and your, your style in bringing everyone to the table. It sounds like you, you just have a very open door, kind of listen, you know, just, just in talking with you, that you just kind of, you, you're a good listener, you like to hear people out. But, you know, walk us through that.
2: Yeah, you know, there's a couple of different pieces that I think of. Is, is first off is that the, the wisdom of the whole Is the bedrock of our organization uh, is to get all those disparate voices that do have those competing interests and get them around the table to say, but this is what I need when it comes to waterway maintenance. And, And so that's always been our first objective is to say, "Okay, where are the trouble spots? What are you seeing this year? What did you not see last year? What really can wait till next year? And just have an honest and upfront conversation. Absolutely. We know that if if we got ninety-three, just over ninety-three million, we could get the entire eleven hundred miles down to its authorized widths and debt. That was the last estimate from the core last year. Only ninety-three million dollars. You know, that's nothing that really that is isn't. a lot in my bank account. But that's nothing. And then annually, it would only take about forty nine and a half million dollars. And the reason why I wanted to start with those two numbers is because it really sets the base to say, guys, this is achievable. We can right. actually do this together. But if you're going to try to fight for your four or five million dollars, you're not going to get it on your own. And, and so that's the first piece of the puzzle. The second one, then, is to turn that enthusiasm or those needs into really concise, specific Um, advocacy and educational points for elected officials and our organization through our board goes up every year and does the lobbying trips on the Hill. Uh, I drag my board members around in a day and a half. We, we hit between 13 to 16 offices and, and you hit the nail on the head. We, it is a bipartisan effort. Uh, We are fortunate in that uh, the Florida inland navigation district, they're the non-federal sponsor in Florida. And they, they actually put about $20 million of their own money toward, Uh, waterway maintenance, about 10 million of that, or just over half of that now, I think 10 or 11 million this last year in dredging. Uh, But they really handle the advocacy effort in the the Florida offices because they've got the great direct tie-in. But then we hit 13 to 16 offices in the other four states and and bring them along. And and why does that matter? It, It really matters because of some success we had in building bipartisan delegation support for the waterway. And just this past year, um, if I can slow down and step back for a second, in 2012, when I got involved, I found out that Florida was doing this uh, just in their delegation. So in essence, the Florida Inland Navigation District was going around to all of their elected officials and the House Representatives and saying, will you sign on to a letter supporting the waterway? And they had very specific asks. Uh, I, I fortunately found out about it really quickly and I said, Hey guys, do you all mind if we start trying to do this in other States of the waterway, once again, building that unification and, Mm -hmm. and we got up to a couple of States this past year, uh, we just got 16 different congressional offices. So 16 different congressional members in six States to sign on to a joint bipartisan delegation letter asking for waterway maintenance. And that includes – that's not only our five. Now we got New Jersey involved because we've made inroads with – and have some partners in New Jersey that are working with us in New Jersey and our coastal waterway. So being able to go to Congress with not just those individual office supports but using our individual members – to get their offices to support a larger effort is uh, and is where we're moving toward, and we're hoping to expand that and, and get a couple more states in and get up to twenty elected officials in twenty twenty. Well, so it's certainly. A, it should it's exciting.
0: It should be. I, I think there isn't any reason, you know, there's some things in politics that are really tough to sort out and, and, and contend with. And then there are things uh, in our government system that are crystal clear. And this is one of them. This waterway matters. It's important. It's a key feature of our economy in, on many levels. And the United States needs to, of course, take care of the infrastructure that it has that drives our economic progress. And this one is a no brainer. And as you say, the amount of money needed to bring the uh, waterway to its full design uh, depths is $93 million. And, you know, I don't want to you know, sound cavalier about it. But you're right. That's nothing in the federal system. And every member of Congress ought to be signing on to these damn uh, letters and getting it in the appropriation system and taking care of business. That's what we're talking about here. But, um, Brad, I want to I want to know about the meeting coming up. We're looking forward to going to the AIWA conference uh, November 21st and 22nd in Savannah you know, tell us about it. 20th Who, year. This is a this, big meeting. The 20th year anniversary meeting. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing I think if you, <laughs> if you don't have anything to do with your kid over the, I don't know with the, take a 13 year old kid. To, I'm serious. I mean, th- this is such an interesting uh, topic, but tell us about the meeting. Who's going to be there? What, what can people expect? What are the highlights that you're looking forward to?
2: Yeah, we really are excited. Uh, first off is, you know, 20 years is for organizations you can either be falling apart or growing. And, and we're really in a, a rapid growth stage, which is where we're excited to bring you guys down to, to do the on-site Uh, broadcasting to and being with us. Uh, We've got a number of great speakers coming up. We're always um, blessed by strong support by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, As we've discussed, they are the maintenance organization uh, for the federal government when it comes to the waterway. And so we'll have representatives... From the North Atlantic Division, the South Atlantic Division, and each individual district. So, if you're a waterway user or stakeholder or local government that has a project that involves the intercoastal Waterway anywhere along the Eastern Seaboard, your project manager is likely going to be there. So, it's that's that's a value that's a value that we've been able to talk to people about that they just cannot believe. Like, how in the world can you get 20 people from the Corps of Engineers that actually are decision makers at a meeting? focused on this one issue and i think it's because we do try to offer something different and and by offering something different we allow each individual district to talk about the state of the waterway what they've been doing what's going on what needs to be done in it, in their district and also get feedback you know where is sea haven consulting shipping Where do they need, where are they having trouble? Where are they hitting a shoal? Is it something we don't know about? Or if a local governor, a government attends, and and we hope we can increase the number of representatives of local governments, if they're saying, hey, we're expanding our docks, we need more transient boaters, this is some of the challenges we're seeing. You really get that one on one interaction. So our core partners are strong. Uh, Our second partner is always going to be the Coast Guard. And the reason why I say that is because if the waterway is not maintained, it definitely needs to be marked. And there's a life and safety issue if we don't maintain our infrastructure. So our Coast Guard partners usually come in uh, to play, and we always ask the local captain of the port, in this case the Port of Savannah, to talk to us about what's going on from their perspective. Uh, We'll also have representatives from NOAA, the charting organization, because – if we're not maintaining it, we have to market it, and to market we need to map it. So we have our mapping organization to the Coastal Survey comes to visit. And then finally, the other big federal organization is the U.S. Department of Transportation to the Maritime Administration. Uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times, it is a unified marine highway, and so we want to bring all of our federal partners. So those are the big groups that we typically have. And then this year, uh, to transition a little bit, we are – continuing to focus and highlight beneficial use of the dredge material. Uh, We just finished a really great project in Jekyll Creek, Georgia, where uh, there was some dredging going on that needed to be done It had not been dredged in over 10 years. And they had no place to put the material and we worked on doing an experimental project and placing some of the material up in the marsh in a thin layer placement for environmental resilience to sea level rise and uh, looking forward to the reports on that, the initial reports where it went well. But that's an opportunity to, uh, and this is, this is a pretty fine material. This is not beach quality material. It's often thought of as pluff mud or muck. Uh, now <laughs> we're finding, we're finding ways to even use that. And that's the reason why I say no dredge material is a spoil, it's all a resource. So I'm just really excited. We're going to have a lot of fun to, uh, uh, and opportunities for networking, long breaks and good receptions. So, as a guy that's been going to the, going to these things for over 25 years, uh, I, I think everybody will find something that they can learn something new about and, and learn uh, about ways to get more involved in our organization.
1: No doubt about it. And uh, for, we are so excited to be there in Savannah. Uh, we're going to make a big deal out of it. Our audience, we're going to be uh, taking a road trip out uh, and we will be podcasting and um, doing videos the entire way out there. And then we, of course, have the meeting. And, you know, anytime you get, I've, I've, I've said this before on the show, and I just, I really believe this. But when you have these gatherings of people, when they all come together, you know, there's always really uh, informative presentations and there's lots of interesting data and maps shown and things like that. But really, what you said, Brad, is the, truly the best part. It's like it's, it's the reception period where you just gather around the, the food or the, uh, the bar, whatever the case may be, and you just talk about things. And with, the, with this cast of characters from, you know, all of those representatives from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Coast Guard, our good friends at NOAA. Uh, the Department of Transportation, just federally. I mean, that's an amazing gathering of uh, federal experts and thought leaders and decision makers, and uh, I just I, I can't wait. I, there's no doubt we're going to have a blast there, right, Pete? I think we are, and uh, it, we are going to take
0: a road trip, right? We're going to drive out, so it'll be fu- it'll be fun for us to. Uh, we'll be following along the Gulf Intercoastal Waterway on our on our transit out. But uh, I wanted to ask one thing. Uh, that even makes, I think, this waterway more critical. And it is the expansion of the Panama Canal and the deepening of the port infrastructure all along the the eastern seaboard now, taking uh, particularly the port of Savannah and Charleston and other uh, ports along the Atlantic seaboard where larger cargo ships are coming in, into these ports, they're deepening these channels. That means more cargo coming to the Atlantic seaboard, which then has to be distributed to the market. And are you seeing and is the organization anticipating a greater demand, as you said, for container shipping on the Atlantic intercoastal waterway because of or connected to the Panamax ships and the deepening and widening of the Panama Canal recently?
2: You know, this has been a a logical conundrum for me. Uh, As a nation, we will build ports because we know that products are coming. But yet we won't invest in waterways because we know they have to be used if it's coming. So yes, absolutely, I, uh, we make that argument, and it's it's an easy one for us to make, and we're seeing it now. Uh, it was funny a couple of years ago when we started really diving into the post Panamax ships, and now they're even getting larger than the initial post Panamax ships. It's absolutely we're going to have to use the waterway more. Just to give a couple of facts out there that a lot of people may not realize is is first off is one barge so just one barge is equivalent to 30 rail cars or 120 semi trucks wow so just one one barge and so no matter how narrow the waterway is or turns, whatever, we can at least get one bar. So that's 120 trucks we can get off the road or or 30 rail cars. And that becomes critical when we start looking at the fact that the latest projections by the American Trucking Association, who's the lobbying organization for the truckers, they're telling us by 2022, they're looking at having around 160,000 driver shortage. Right. So we have increased commodities coming in. We have uh, decreased ability to ship those products. And right now, by 2040, just, just in a short 20 years, uh, DOT did a study called Beyond Traffic 2045, and they expect freight shipment to increase 45%. Ooh. So you've got deepening ports, 45% freight volume increase, 160,000 tri- trucker shortage. I don't see any other way. And right. uh, and we're starting to see up and down. Norfolk was the first one. Uh, the, the, the port up there in, in the Norfolk area, in Hampton Roads area, they were the first ones, Port of Virginia, where they started doing container-on-barge shipping up to Richmond. And this incredible success story where they're actually moving products and using Richmond as the final destination. Interesting. So you bring it into the Port of Virginia. They offload it onto a smaller borge. They're doing refrigerated barges now up there, wow. uh, doing container-on-barge. and. And on top of that, the that last two that we've just seen is uh, Port of Charleston just got approval for a marine highway project to do container on barge shipping at the Port of Charleston. And then the final one is we just saw one get awarded project grant money given through MARAD, the Maritime Administration, to – a stretch between Fernandina Beach in northern Florida up to Charleston, so running laterally or uh, along the waterway. So we are definitely seeing a, a huge expansion of container-on-board shipments. That's great. And, w- and, and we know it has to.
0: Well, and and the thing is, is of course, we have so many major metropolitan areas and therefore markets for goods are located along the coastline or therefore directly uh, adjacent to the waterway itself. But these rail Networks uh, that the uh, barge barge operators can connect to in conjunction with the port operators really starts to create a more efficient and environmentally sound transportation system for the country. And so for all the folks out there who are concerned about global warming and the increased use of fossil fuels, I mean, these guys can move materials so much more efficiently on water than they can on trucks. And so, it is absolutely an environmental imperative that the waterway be expanded and maintained and improved because we have to move things around and 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 produce, if you're a believer, uh, fewer carbon uh, emissions, and uh, it's beneficial for the for the environment.
1: Well and'm I'm just, I'm just piling on here we, we will move it. <laughs> this These goods will be moved. The question is, do we move them as efficiently as possible? And uh, clearly the waterway, Brad, to get back to your chicken and egg comment, if the waterway is not in a condition where it can be immediately put into the calculation of these shipping and, and moving uh, organizations and companies, then it, they will not go that route. But if it is maintained and it is an option, it is cheaper, and they will. Uh, and it's more carbon efficient. So uh, I do think that it's, uh, as part of our uh, national discussion on reducing uh, our our carbon footprints individually as consumers of goods that are globally produced and transported around the world via these massive ships, uh, it is worthwhile for us to consider and, and pause and think about how... Uh, impr- investment in our waterways can in- decrease our in- our individual carbon footprints, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's actually been a, d- a little bit of work done on that where they're looking at the hydrocarbon emissions and a uh, towboat versus a train. A train is, uh, emits five times as much hydrocarbons as a towboat and a truck emits seven times as much uh, emissions as a, as a, Towboat when you're looking at one ton of cargo over a thousand miles. So we pick a metric and and look at it. So it's it's tremendously more efficient, absolutely. And uh, but you know what? I don't want it to come off as all negative. Why we have to do it in chicken and the the earth's lawn. I actually see it as a great opportunity for some of these other smaller ports. What about if we could energize some of these ports? right now aren't getting a lot of products in because they're smaller let's use port of georgetown south carolina they literally have shoaling challenges on the ocean bound stretch that's not allowing a lot of cargo to get in but the waterway connecting georgetown to charleston is is being maintained what about if charleston could ship some of their stuff up to georgetown loaded on rail cars there and distribute the load more efficiently right you know, great. we've got some, you got Savannah and Brunswick. Almost every port has a sister port or one nearby, even if it's in a, another state, where we could really start to see some uh, cool usages of waterways while also, as you all mentioned, is bringing down the environmental impact. And uh, yes, we're, you know, the waterway doesn't, isn't going to and doesn't want to comp- commit, compete with Amazon Prime. You know, we're not going to be there tomorrow, but there's a lot of material. <laughs> There's a lot of material if we got it off those trucks, you know, and and got them off the rail cars because they don't need to be there tomorrow. uh, We could really have a more reasonable approach to both satisfying the need of the customer who is the U.S. citizen, at the same time supporting commercial investment and development. And it's uh, I see a lot of blue sky out there.
1: You know, I've I've I was. sidebar conversation I had with a good friend of mine who works at Google, and he was telling me about the advanced research that that company is doing in areas of, tra- he he actually works for Google Maps, but in the area of uh, neural nets and basically machine learning. And, um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that in the future, we will look for the most optimal way to, to transport uh, goods. Around the country, and waterways will absolutely be an important part of that, uh, provided they can be invested in and maintained. And for such a you know relatively small uh, cost, they can be. I do want to uh, circle back to the beneficial use of dredge material, Brad, because this is something that I know we're going to hear a lot about at ASBPA uh, when we're there, and we're going to hear about uh, at your meeting as well, um, and I think that perhaps the majority of our audience is familiar with BUDM uh, along on beaches as a renourishment um, approach. Uh, And that requires, as you said earlier, beach quality sand. But a lot of the material on the intercoastal is not sand at all. It's, it's, uh, as you put it, it's kind of mud, it's muck. Uh, It's got a lot of organic material in it. And but but there is beneficial use, as you said, Uh, it's not spoil, it's useful material. Um, tell us a little bit about the state of the art in utilizing this material. You mentioned that one kind of thin, uh, distribution of done adjacent, but I'm just curious to know, we don't, this is a, this is a burgeoning area and I, I would love to, to hear what we can expect at the meeting, uh, with regard to BUDM.
2: Yeah, it's been fun for me to watch. I've, I've been involved in, you know, Peter knows beach management going back to the midnight late 1990s and and back then we used to talk about just putting sand on sandy beaches and to be able to now transition in this position the last few years and see okay yes we want to continue to do sand on sandy beaches and we do have areas i would say down in florida a lot of the intercoastal waterway in florida is sandy material that does go on beaches so we are doing beach placement right now with uh, waterway material which is incredible to see and it's great Um, the second thing that we're doing is we're building little small islands or restoring Islands that have come up. I, once again, there's, we'll be talking about a project in Florida. I don't want to spill too much on it since it's going to be part of our annual meeting. But there was a project done in, uh, in Palm Beach County where some of the material that was removed from a dredging project was used to build a, a small res- restoration island, a marsh island, to create habitat inside the waterway. So it was actually an in-water placement project. It's, it's really cool, and I can't wait to learn more about it myself. It was under construction last time I saw it. Uh, so that's an example of not quite beach quality, but not quite uh, thin, uh, really thin material. Uh, then we do get up to projects like the Jekyll Creek, which we realize that that material would not be suitable for beach placement. It's just way too fine. But It does have rich organic material, and we have those adjacent marsh systems that – Need replacement. Uh, We know that it's going to run. We know it's going to flow. So the state of the art on this right now is to actually build on the success of others. The Philadelphia District, and we're going to have a representative from the Philadelphia District and a non-governmental organization. uh, Two speakers coming down from work that they've been doing in New Jersey, intercoastal waterway to build islands and marsh restoration to increase coastal resilience. We're building off some of the lessons they've learned and lessons that have been learned in uh, Louisiana, where we do place we're starting to work with some small scale projects to restore upland areas with some of this uh, finer material and also trying to control flows and see where that is. And, and as a scientist myself, I'm really intrigued in learning how we can better utilize all the, the sand that's in there. So we're, we're using an all of the above. Uh, where we have beach quality material, we're encouraging placement in the beach on the beach or in the near shore area uh, where we have material that's mixed, we're encouraging the creation of marsh islands or restoration projects in water. And then where we have material that's super fine, we are going to continue to try to identify places where we can do marsh restoration and coastal resiliency for sea level rise. So I see us having a, a wider toolbox instead of being limited by the material that we have, which is one way you can look at it. Was, yeah, you don't have beach quality material, but well, we could definitely do that. Or we can look at our toolbox and say, yeah, I don't have a hammer, but I got I got this over here that can function as a hammer. I've got a screwdriver. I've got a set of pliers. Why don't we pull out the entire toolbox and, uh, and see what can be done?
0: Yeah, 100 percent. The days of treating dredge material as a waste product and throwing it offshore is way long gone. Thank God. And I'll have to say that all of the folks around the American shoreline, on the Gulf Coast, the Atlantic Seaboard, who've worked their butts off for decades to get the Corps of Engineers to think more creatively about dredge material management... Uh, have really deserve a lot of credit because in my career too, uh, Brad, I think we've seen the discussion on dredge material management uh, evolve over the last 20 years from a time when the core was, you know, we've got a way to do it. We've handled it the way we've done it all the time. Get out of here. We don't need to do it to a point now where uh, the utilization of dredge material in a beneficial way on beaches or in marsh systems is now considered standard practice almost. It's good stuff now. And I think that, you know, the Corps deserves a lot of credit, as do all of the organizations who've worked so hard to bring that change into reality. Um, But here's why I think it's doubly important that this continue to happen. And of course, when people talk about sea level rise and the loss of marshes. We're seeing we a, a huge trend towards living shorelines as a shoreline management technique. That means marshes. It means utilizing material effectively on the beach and in the bay systems. And the operators of this waterway are a key component in that uh, exercise because they are the source of so much of the material that can be used in a good way. So, for those of folks out there who think, "Well, I don't really need to care about the Intercoastal Waterway system or the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway," I'm not in the shipping business. You have to think of this waterway in a more holistic way and the role that it can play on the American shoreline. I think it's it's really important, and I think the work that you're doing at the association. Is really important and I we just continue to be supportive of, of the initiatives that you guys are are trying to execute.
2: Thank you and I, and I really want to highlight the point you raised about partnering uh, using different words. But I also, and you will too, remember, you know, those 20 years ago conversations, oftentimes it was grenade tossing. Yeah. You know, the, the non-federal spots were going throw a bunch of grenades and watch them blow up and then not come to the table with uh, with supportive solutions. And I think that's also been a huge change, is there's been a lot of collaboration and a lot of part partnering and a lot of putting our everybody putting their egos aside and saying what's best for the for the system and I, I can't celebrate our federal and non-federal partners enough to to be able to do that it's a it's definitely been a sea change and and we're glad to be part of it we, we fortunately are invited to participate in engineering with nature events and beneficial use and regional sediment na- management and we continue to want to play an active role in that because uh, the waterway is going to play a, con- a continuing role in providing material for those projects yeah. and uh, And so we want to be there and be able to provide the technology to get it done, too. So that would be the last thing I would want to make sure and not leave out for the conference is one of our panels is going to be on natural infrastructure and thin layer replacement from a contractor's perspective. Hmm. So we're going to have a representative from Cottrell Contracting, Devin Carlock. And then also Stan Ekron from the Great Lakes Dredge and Dock talking about natural infrastructure. So we're bringing not only I mentioned up front the Corps of Engineers, and I just mentioned non-governmental organizations in New Jersey. And we'll be inviting people from uh, Georgia. We also want to bring the 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 contracting side. Um, They have a lot of wisdom that they need to share with us and we need to hear. Not just being told, yeah, go fix that, go do that. We need to to be receiving that information back. Yeah, we did it and this is what we learned and you need to add into your decision making. So we want to bring all the stakeholders to the table and that's one of the things that I think the AIWA has been able to do in the past 20 years and wants to continue to do, at least under my leadership.
0: Well, soup to nuts is what you can expect at the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association meeting coming up November 21st through the 22nd in Savannah, Georgia. Beginning next week, you can register for the conference online, but feel free to go directly to Atlantic Intracoastal, that's with org to register for this great conference. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Brad Pickle, Executive Director of the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association. We really appreciate you taking time to join us on the American Shoreline Podcast, and we sure look forward to attending the conference in November over in Savannah, Georgia.
2: Look forward to having you guys with us, and thanks again for this great partnership. We look forward to staying in contact with you as we go forward.
0: Thank you, Brad. Have a great week.